Three road teams winning the wild card round as we look ahead to the division series starting tomorrow. With that said, a disappointing but not so shocking postmortem on the New York Mets. NFL Week 5 had a big surprise in London, a nail-biter in Baltimore, and not a lot much else in between as I'll highlight the winners and losers. Alabama survives at home but drops two spots in the rankings as Georgia and Ohio State make a push to the top. The NHL season has arrived. I'll preview the upcoming year with over-under point totals and a Stanley Cup final prediction. It's going to be another fast, furious, entertaining, and passionate hour of sports talk. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You could also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, my good people. Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, on the cusp of another podcast milestone, number 300 this coming Thursday. I'm about to go Gerard Butler and Spartan on the Mets, NFL, and everything that's in my sports news, topics, and headlines way as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back here on this Indigenous Peoples Day where there is a flag at half-mast, not only in Queens, but of course in my apartment, which I'll get to as we could put to bed and write out an epitaph for the 2022 New York Mets, but I'm not going to start there. Yes, I'm sure everybody's probably thinking, oh boy, Jay Reels is going to put the hammer down, but I'm going to put it on pause for a moment. That's right. No, I'm not going to get into the NFL, college football, even the NHL season, which has begun. Nope. I'm putting that all on ice, no pun intended, for the current moment because I am going to start off with baseball as the division series begins tomorrow with a bit of a quirky schedule, especially for the American League. And I wonder if that's more for the Yankees and the Astros advantageous-wise as opposed to the National League. And again, I'll explain that later on. But with the wild card in our rearview mirror and we take a look at the weekend on a whole, I think baseball 
Did pretty well, especially Saturday. Saturday was just a crazy baseball day. One of the more memorable wild card. And I get it, this is the first iteration. If you want to even go back to 2020 with the pandemic shortened year, you had those wild card series to start. But a lot of those have been forgotten by now. But knowing that this is implemented in its first year moving forward, that Saturday was as wild as you could possibly get. Whether it's the 15-inning marathon, the first time in Major League postseason history that a game was scoreless heading into the 15th inning. You had the epic comeback by Seattle, down 8-1, going to the top of the 6th, and then they go ahead and win 10-9. The Phillies, with Bryce Harper hitting a home run in the 2nd inning after coming from behind with 6 runs in the ninth inning the day before to beat the Cardinals, and then... For them to go ahead and win the series where Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado with first and second one out down 2-0 in the bottom of the eighth both struck out to Sir Anthony Dominguez, not to be confused with Brad Lidge or Tug McGraw of Philly's yesteryear teams. But the weekend on a whole was probably a B. You didn't have a lot of excitement. You didn't have a lot of drama, especially in the Met Padre series. And again, I'll get to that in a second. But the wildcard weekend is now over and done with. Give it up to the Guardians who did very well in their two games. Now granted they can't score to save a lick. To think it took four runs over 24 innings or into the 24th inning for them to even scratch and claw out those three runs. Four runs in total because the Rays had the one run with the Jose Siri home run in game Number one in the sixth inning. And then Jose Ramirez at the two-run homer in game one in the bottom of the sixth. But four runs total, but three runs for the Guardians throughout the 24 innings that were almost played. And that's not going to bode well going into the next round, but I'll preview the division series in a little bit. But the Guardians did what they had to do. Took care of home field. Swept. And now they face the Yankees in the division series. As for Tampa, what can you say? Four years in a row in the postseason. Yes, they did make it to the World Series two years ago. And here they are, another tough defeat where they couldn't score a run. They couldn't even buy a run, let alone try to get one across the plate. We know Tampa's resourceful. We know that they're going to be in competition year in and year out based on how the organization is run. But when you really boil down to it, even though with the World Series run here, But they never seem to be able to win that big game or win that big series and not take their team to the next level. As far as the other series in the American League, what about Luis Castillo? How that trade has paid off big time for the Mariners. We talked about his extension a week ago and they got him on the cheap. So for a guy that probably could have commanded anywhere 200 to $250 million, we know Seattle isn't that type of organization. Although they have money, But of course, they're not the New Yorks, the LA's, the Chicago's, the Boston's, the Philadelphia's of the world. But for Castillo to be a part of the team and a part of that rotation, seven innings, six hits, no walks, five strikeouts. They win the opening game. And then, of course, as I mentioned just a moment ago, for them to have that epic comeback. And that's one of the things in the postseason that you have to have. Not only the pitching, of course, but timely hitting. And for the Blue Jays to get off to that 8-1 lead and knowing that you get to the top of the sixth, anytime that you have a big rally, 
And at that point, they scored four runs. It was a 4-1 game. They made it 8-1. The next thing you want to do as, whether you be a starter or a reliever, is to put up a big fat donut in the next frame. Because even if they were to scratch across a run there, God forbid, a crooked number, anything to get the other team's momentum, you want to be able to put up a zero to where you can either continue offensively or keep the other team at bay. And as it was in that top of the sixth, when they scored four runs to make it 8-5, that's where it made you think, hmm, Seattle's not done yet. And even as the Jays tacked on another run in the bottom of the seventh to make it 9-5, and you're thinking, all right, now they have six outs to work with. Chances are this series is going to be tied. But then Seattle comes back with four, another four spot in the top of the eighth, and then one in the top of the ninth. And they go ahead to win 10-9. You have the big circle there in the infield where they're dancing around. I don't know what that was because I was in transit at that time. Actually, I was in the neighborhood. I was watching the Met game on my phone, but knowing that they had the celebration and seeing the Mariner players there in the infield and on the diamond do this, I don't know what it was, a river dance or some sort of dance where they were in a group circle, but very good to see. Great for the fans of Seattle who had that long playoff drought. And now they get to move on to play a division rival in the Houston Astros. The National League, the Phillies, we pretty much summed up in a few sentences, how that series went, where game one, the Cardinals looked like they were cruising, and then the ninth inning just imploded on them. Their closer came in and spit the bit. And then the game on Saturday, it was all Aaron Nola as he carried the Phillies for six innings. And then Sir Anthony Dominguez came on with the big two strikeouts there in the eighth inning, which sealed the game. And even though with a mild threat in the ninth with two outs, they got a couple of hits, including Yadier Molina. But Zach Eflin, who looks like is going to be their closer here, was able to seal the deal. And the Phillies move on to play the Atlanta Braves in the division series. So now we get to put a, I don't want to even say a ribbon, a bow. I guess you could say a tombstone. And I'm going to keep this short and sweet because I got a big podcast and a lot of stuff to talk about. But obviously I have to go in on this Met team. And yes, I could sit here and talk about They lost the season, and I'm not talking about just the regular season, but pretty much their playoff fate by not winning one game in Atlanta last week. And I will believe that until my dying day. I don't want to hear from the most optimistic Met fan that we won 101 games, what a season, and prior to Friday night that the blue and orange pom-poms were broken out to the point where, hey, it's still all in front of us. Hey, we still have an opportunity. Hey, this team has been great all year. We've responded, we've done this, we've done that. How do you feel about watching what you saw unfold over the weekend? Number one. Number two, knowing that if they just would have won one game with DeGrom, Scherzer, Bassett to just take us home for one victory, that we would have been hosting the Phillies tomorrow night as opposed to planning our winter vacation as not only sports fans, but of course the Mets as a team overall. And for all their foibles in the final week of the season, and I get it, they played the Nationals and swept them, big whoop. But for them to not win a game in Atlanta, and then for Max Scherzer, or for that putrid start in Atlanta, for him to get on that mound, and he made no excuses in the postgame. And even though he was talking about his fastball was all over the place, and I don't know if he was saying that as to read between the lines, 
because he was compromised by that oblique late in the season and that he wasn't able to get and locate his fastball the way he usually does to where they smacked four home runs off of him, the most by a Met pitcher in postseason history. On top of that, Trent Grisham all of a sudden is now Babe Ruth, who had two home runs in the series, had a big hit in the game last night, made a catch in the outfield that was obviously could have been big for the Mets. Maybe they could have turned their fortunes around if that ball wasn't caught. And for Grisham, and then on top of that, Joe Musgrave last night, who looked like Bob Gibson, 1968. And even with Buck Showalter going out there in the sixth inning to do a gamesmanship check on Musgrove, supposedly his ears, and it did look like that on the broadcast. They were real shiny, and he was going to his ears a lot throughout the course of the night. And then he made that gesture after striking out Tomas Nito, which, all right, I get it. He was upset, and he tried to show them up. But let me see you do this against the Dodgers, Joe Musgrave or Musgrove and beyond because the Dodgers have had your number not necessarily him but the team over the last couple of years so I don't think you're going to be long for this postseason that's just me the bitter Met fan coming out but I wouldn't be surprised if Musgrove in his start gets lit up by the Dodgers that's number one and then Trent Grisham who batted 184 in the year has some pop 18 home runs and I believe in the month of September he batted 100 again he's looking like George Herman Ruth to where he's making plays all over the field, hitting the ball out of the ballpark against Hall of Fame talent and future Hall of Fame pitchers. And the guy, he could not even get it out over the course of this weekend. But even with that embarrassing performance there by Scherzer on Friday night, they did come back on Saturday. Granted that Jacob DeGrom did not have it after giving up the home run to Grisham. He relied more on his slider and maybe didn't trust his fastball as much. Maybe because he knew he didn't want to get smacked around, quite possibly. But he did find his touch there in the fifth and sixth inning. He was removed at that time. And I thought even at 99 pitches, he should have came out for the seventh inning. Although, or he should have came out to pitch in the seventh inning. But as it was, we saw Edwin Diaz come in the seventh inning. And then the broadcast thought he would probably go four innings, which they were clueless on. But I digress. The Mets were able to hang on there because thanks to a four-run seventh, and the Pete Alonso home run there in the fifth to make it 3-2, which they didn't trail from that point on. Jeff McNeil had the big two-run single to make it 7, or at that point, 5-2. It was 7-2 before you know it. They did get a run in the ninth, and I will say this. When Josh Bell was up with the bases loaded against Seth Lugo, there was a part of me that thought that Josh Bell was going to hit a grand slam there. And let's say if he did hit a grand slam and the Mets lost that game, I don't know how I would have done it, but somehow, some way, I would have found a way between now and March 30th, the start of next baseball season, to strip myself of any Met fandom that I have in every fiber of my body. Because there would be no coming back from that. But thankfully, it's moot. Not to discuss. No worries. If ands, or buts. And then last night, I'm going to start off with Chris Bassett. Here's a guy that early in the week made a comment where he said that if we lose two or three games in a row, that the city would burn down, or the town would burn down, or the fans would get so upset that the town would burn Somewhere along the lines of that, and I'm paraphrasing. Chris Bassett, you're a free agent, and you had a good year. Not knocking you, not knocking the year you had. Yes, I can knock you for Atlanta last weekend, in which you are absolutely abominable. And then last night, inexplicable to, all right, you give up a hit, but then you walk. 
the seven and eight guys to get to Austin Nolan and he gets a two-run single, which was the beginning of the end for the Mets and Joe Musgrove. That was an insurmountable lead for the Mets because they couldn't even touch him as he was perfect for four innings. And then on top of that, gave up one hit in his seven innings that he pitched. The only hit was to Pete Alonso. But back to Bassett, if that's how you feel about being on a Met team with their rabid fan base and starving and dying for a championship that now the drought is 36 years and counting, then you know what? Go back to Oakland and re-sign with them. Because you're going to make that type of comment in a town, in a city that is baseball-centric, that has knowledgeable and passionate baseball fans, and especially in that building to where, and I will say this, it wasn't even a sellout last night. That building, I believe, holds 42,100, 42,000 that is, and the attendance was announced at 39,200 something. So they were almost 3,000 fans short of a sellout. And yes, you could get on me that did not show up to the game or any of the other Met fans that didn't fill those remaining seats. But guess what? They're actually smart because I'm sure they knew better than to not witness another execution in their building as they saw in 2015 to the Royals in Game 5, as they saw in 2016 in the wild card game against the San Francisco Giants. And then last night, even with their 7-3 win, although it was a little uncomfortable in the ninth inning, but they did not pay a red cent to get into that building last night because I'm sure they knew deep in their gut, just like I did going into that game, that they were probably going to lose. And therefore, they spared the expense, they spared the travel time, whether by car, parking, subway, cab, Uber, you name it. And what they saw last night was death by a thousand paper cuts, which is a hell of a lot better than getting your heart ripped out of your chest as you saw, what is it now, 16 years ago in a game seven where Yadier Molina took Aaron Heilman deep into the night and the Mets had the bases loaded, and we all know about the Beltron at bat, as I've said a million times on this podcast. But yes, that was one where not only was your heart ripped out of your chest, but you saw the Cardinals stomp on it. Where last night, there was no drama, there was really nothing to even cheer about. Hence the death by a thousand paper cuts. So as you're watching that game, and you're just saying to yourself, these three words, or at least this is what I did as a Met fan, because when I look back on the season, and yes, 101 regular season wins, the second most in franchise history. Yes, being in first place for 175 days out of the 180, and one more time, needing one more win in Atlanta to control their own destiny and to host in a division series, which they would have done tomorrow night. As a Met fan, I'm sure a lot of others out there feel the same way. My guys, John Guerrero, Scott Seaman, Jerome DeSantis, Jimmy Coleman, my uncle Mark Vega, and any other Met fan that I forgot. My girl Jasmine on Instagram, even her too. To all those Met fans and beyond, and I don't care if you're the most pessimistic Met fan, the most optimistic Met fan, the 2022 New York Mets, we were bamboozled. We were made to believe that this team was going to go to a World Series. We were made to believe that this team had the ingredients. We were made to believe that this was it for 175 days. And then what happened a week ago as we were talking about this on the podcast, then the reality hit where chances are we're not going to go to a World Series because instead of playing the Phillies and then maybe the Braves and Dodgers after that to go to a World Series, we'll have to go through San Diego, 
into LA and chances are maybe even after that Atlanta before we get even into a World Series. We didn't even get out of City Field with a series win against the San Diego Padres. A Padre team, I might add, beat the Mets six out of nine times this year. And I knew you Darvis was going to be a son of a bitch on Friday. Even with Max Scherzer spitting the bit, so I don't want to hear the Met fan, oh, well, the offense didn't show up Friday night. Well, if Max Scherzer would have kept us in the game, then maybe he would have had a chance to be in the game. All right, you give up three runs in five innings and even make it out of the fifth inning, which is another disaster. But, ah. What more can I say? What more can I say? I think I pretty much summed it up. And I'm going to move on because I can continue to babble and I don't want to talk about this because again, I got a lot of other things to get to. In fact, the division series, which I'm going to preview now, how about we just segue into that, shall we? The division series. Let's get into some storylines here because to me, there are three of them. The first one is the Dodgers. To me, if they do not win a World Series this year, it is a complete disaster. You do not win 111 games in a regular season. Dominate the way you have from start to finish to not win a World Series. If you win, you win. And not only that, but it will even legitimize the 2020 pandemic-shortened year. And it was legit. I get it. 60 games. and But the Dodgers were still going to be dominant. The Dodgers are still going to be good. And they had to go through an extra round. Remember the wild card round? They beat Milwaukee in those uh, two out of three. And they actually swept those two games. Then they beat the Padres, which they're probably going to whip this coming week in the division series. Then they were down 3-1 to Atlanta. And they came back and won that. And then, of course, beating the Rays as they did. So, you know what? It is legitimate. But I'm sure without having a parade because of COVID and knowing that they had this monster year, it is all or nothing for this team. So they're my storyline number one. Number two, I'm going to say the Astros because they've been knocking on the door for several years. And yes, we could go back to 2017, them winning the championship, beating the Dodgers, and we could talk about all the sign-stealing scandals and the Yankees and what happened in Game 5 of the World Series where Kershaw, the 38 sliders, the trash cans. Okay, we're going to have to revisit that, but all right, we could put that aside and look at 2019, them losing all their home games. So you could say the cheating has been gone, considering that the Washington Nationals won a World Series where they won four road games. So they earned that. And then last year, losing to the Braves in six to where they've come this close since winning that World Series title five years ago. And now with another big regular season, and it doesn't matter who's on the roster. They lose Garrett Cole. They lose George Springer. They lose Carlos Correa. They even lose Michael Brantley, who's still on the team, but he's out with a shoulder injury for the whole postseason. And it doesn't matter because they do not skip a beat. Their pitching is probably even more formidable now than it has been in the 2017 championship year, as well as the 2019 and 2021 AL championship teams. So here they are, Astros, ready to face the Seattle Mariners. But to me, and for Dusty Baker, and even for that organization... That elusive World Series since that championship against the Dodgers five years ago, I'm sure they want this more than anything. So let's see how they fare. And lastly, the number three are the Yankees. Because it's not the Braves. They won a World Series last year, so we can look at the Braves, even if they lose in a championship series to the Dodgers or in the World Series. If you're a Brave fan, for the 300 of you that are out there, you're going to live with that. 
You don't want to lose to the Phillies here in a division series. That would be bad. Because they've had a great year unto themselves. And for them to lose here in the division series, that would be awful. But if they lose to the Dodgers or the Astros, Yankees, if it happens to be those teams that lie ahead of this baseball postseason, then so be it. It's not going to be any of the wildcard teams, Philly, Seattle, San Diego, even the Guardians. Nobody's going to look at them as making a deep run. The third storyline are the Yankees because A, they have not been to a World Series in 13 years. Aaron Boone needs to get to a World Series after the tremendous start they had this year at 51-18 and and 61-23. and They bottomed out in July and August and hung on early September before they righted the ship, got better, and have played their best baseball since the latter part of May into June. And with Aaron Judge and the monster season that he had, and I understand I'd even bring him up on the podcast Thursday, so my bad there, hitting the 60-second home run off of Jesus Tinoco, down in Texas in the second game of that doubleheader to surpass Roger Maris for the Yankee and American League all-time record. A year that's going to bring him a tremendous payday. We've talked about this ad infinitum on the podcast, betting on himself back in April, the $213 million contract that he forego because he knew that he was worth more than that and he bet on himself and look what happened. He hit the mother load as far as having one of the all-time seasons in Major League Baseball history. But... Now let's see this in October. Let's see this in a division series, championship series, and dare I even say a world series if you're Aaron Judge. Because if there's one player that is going to be spotlighted here from tomorrow night on, no, it's not going to be any of the Dodgers. It's not going to be Mookie Betts. It's not going to be Clayton Kershaw. Although people are going to look at him too with his postseason, not backing up his regular season stats, especially when you talk about the big picture. It's not Clayton Kershaw, it's not any of the Astros, not even Justin Verlander, none of it. It is Aaron Judge, because if he falls short or comes up small here in any one of these series, he's still going to get his big payday, he's still going to be a rich son of a gun, but in the immortal words, and I said this many times on the podcast, Walt Clyde Frazier, the legendary Nick, all-time great NBA player. You make your name in the regular season and your fame in the postseason. Let's see if he could back up that regular season name in 2022 into postseason fame. Because if he doesn't, it's going to look mighty bad on number 99. Now to preview these series, I'll start off with the American League, the Guardians, I understand they're going to pitch, and they're going to pitch well, but we saw what they've done offensively. And Tampa has some good pitchers and good relief pitchers. But three runs in 24 innings is not going to cut it against this Yankee offense. And we understand this Yankee offense could go through droughts, and we've seen that in the postseason. And the Guardian pitching is going to have to be impeccable. As I said even last week, the Guardians are going to have to win these games just how you saw them win against Tampa. They're going to have to win low-scoring games in order for them to not only win a series, but even to be successful. Because 5-4 games are going to cut it for the Guardians. They're going to have to win tight games. Beaver's going to have to pitch seven innings. Tristan McKenzie's going to have to do the same. Because if you're going to think that these guys are going to be lights out and then your offense is going to 
barely put up a run, how are they going to win this series against the Yankees, which obviously have mashers throughout the whole lineup? Now, yes, can they go into funks? Yes, can they go into long stretches where they can't get a hit and they strike out left and right? Absolutely. But in this series, and I'll say this right off the bat, if there's one of these division series that would be shocking if there was an upset, it's this one right here. And with that being said, I don't even think the Guardians get a game. We saw this two years ago, and I get it. You can't base it on what happened a couple of years ago, different team, etc. But Shane Bieber was the Cy Young in the American League that year. And what happened in game one against the Yankees in that short wild card series against the Yanks? He got lit up in that game. Not to say it's going to happen again tomorrow night or really Wednesday night because remember, he pitched on Friday. So he's not even going to pitch Wednesday. And in fact, because of that quirky schedule in the American League, you're going to have all four teams play tomorrow. Or all four games, I should say. All four series get my words and my phrasing correct. But you're going to have the National League play Tuesday and Wednesday where the American League is going to get a day off and then play on Thursday as a standalone series. And then they're going to be off Friday to where the National League will recover. And then from there on out, you're going to have days in consecutive where you'll have all these series, especially if they go to distance, without a day off. So quickly, National League is going to be Game one and two, Tuesday, Wednesday, Phillies, Braves, Padres, Dodgers, day off on Thursday, and then play Friday through Sunday. American League, tomorrow, Guardians, Yankees, Mariners, Astros, off Wednesday, play game two on Thursday, off Friday, play games three, four, five if necessary, Saturday through Monday. And that's why I think the Yankees are going to sweep here because they'll have their pitching lined up. You're going to have Garrett Cole game one, Nestor Cortez, and it's going to be an advantage to them, you think, for the next round, especially if they do easy work to the Guardians because then they could just reset their pitching as opposed to if it goes five games, then they're going to have their game five starter probably pitch game three, and you know how that unfolds if you go deep into these series. Mariners and Astros, I think the Mariners are a live dog here. Would it be an upset? It would be mild. Nothing in comparison to Guardians-Yankees, I think. But we're going to have to wait and see where Luis Castillo is going to fit in because you would think he's not going to go on three days rest and pitch Tuesday. I would be shocked if they do that. That would wreak desperation. And I wouldn't like that. Let him pitch Thursday. But I understand if you do pitch him on three days rest and then you can bring him back, maybe to even pitch Sunday on full rest. It's quite possible I could see Scott Service, the manager, do that. So that's something that will actually benefit Seattle. And one of the things about these wildcard teams, especially with the way the schedule is and rotations, because obviously they're upended. You're not going to see your number one starters pitch in any of these opening games. But if they do happen to get game one with the layoff that the four top two seeds have had in each the AL and NL, I think that could be something to look at if the road team were to steal a game one. Because obviously they take the home field back, number one. And number two, it also gets their top starters back in the mix in the middle of the series to where they may be able to close out a series if everything falls right. Big if, again, if everything falls right. So we'll have to see how that shakes down. But as far as Mariners-Astros, I think the... Mariners have it in them to win a game, maybe two, but I think Houston, I'm going to say they win in four. 
I think the Castillo start, if he does start on short rest, if they steal that game, who knows? But right now it's undecided that who's the starter is going to be for the Mariners. We know Justin Verlander is going to start for the Astros, but I think the Astros will win the series in four. As for the National League, I think the Dodgers, they've pounded the Padres over the last couple of years, especially with the team being revamped. And even with Juan Soto this year and all the craziness that happened with the Padres this year, trading for Josh Hader, also Juan Soto, the specter of Fernando Tatis and what happened with him with his injury and then with the banning of 80 games with the PED use. Not to say that they are going to just roll over against the Dodgers, but this is a big brother, little brother series to where the Dodgers just smack the Padres around. And you know what? As much as I want to say sweep, and I wouldn't be surprised, you know what the hell with it. I'm going to say sweep. And that's not because of what the Padres did to the Mets over the weekend, but I could see this being the same movie we saw in 2020 when the Dodgers and Padres played and pretty much what we've seen since then. And I think they're just going to lay the smackdown on them. So I can see the Dodgers sweep in there. And then with the Phillies and Braves, the Braves have had a tremendous two-thirds of their final season or rest of their season, I should say. And the Phillies, listen, they know the Braves and they did lose five of their final seven late in the regular season against Atlanta. Maybe the Phillies get one game and maybe I'll give them that where you have these series, three of the four division series are division rivals but I'm going to say that the Braves win this in four games you may have two potential sweeps with the Dodgers and the Yanks and the other two series I think are going to go four games which wouldn't bode well because baseball needs to have length in these series they would love to see a couple of game fives if possible you only had one game three last night and there was no drama in the game whatsoever and when we look at the wild card real quick overall I'd say it was a B There was no drama in the Met-Padre series whatsoever. Seattle-Toronto had the crazy game too, which was good for baseball. Tampa and Cleveland, not exciting baseball to say the least when you have four runs total in the series, but because it was close and tooth and nail, all right, I'll give you that. And then because of the six-run uprising in game number one, that was thrilling to see. But other than the eighth inning there Saturday night, where both Goldschmidt and Arenado struck out, not a lot there. So maybe a B is being generous. You could probably give it a B minus at best. But baseball's hoping to have a better second round, and we'll see. I don't think it's going to be... You're going to have a, probably a couple of games that'll be thrilling, but I don't think it's going to be edge of your seat. Oh my goodness, the Padres are up 2-1 against the Dodgers in the series. They could close out the series at home at Petco. Or same for the Guardians for that matter. Or will Seattle push the Astros to the brink? I'm going to say no. But as we like to say when we watch sports, we shall see. All right, now it's time to put on the helmet and shoulder pads as we go through the NFL and college. And the NFL yesterday, it's been five weeks. And I'm going to say this real quick. Two things. One... We're just about one-third into the NFL season. And not to say that each and every week has to be thrilling and has to be a white-knuckler, nail-biting type of game or games or scenarios, etc. But has the first five weeks been underwhelming to you? For me, I'm going to say yes. And once again, that's not to go crazy or to think that, oh, the season is going to be a bust or it's been terrible or what have you. But 
I don't know, some of these storylines and the way things have gone so far to where you have the only undefeated team being the Philadelphia Eagles and kudos to them as they've done very well here. But I guess it's good in this regard because even though you could get some separation between who are the top teams in the league and who aren't, but it is kind of weird to know that we got a sense and a good sample size of what this NFL season has been to date. But it's almost as if it's incomplete and yes, I understand we got to play out the rest of the season to get into the postseason and it'll all be ironed out and figured out that time. But it's weird because my grasping of the season or the way I would grasp it is that, yes, you have an Eagle team that has been undefeated, but are they the best team? Yes, you could say by record. And yes, you could say by what they've done so far, but who have they played, etc. That is and could be a big debate. Yeah, we've seen Buffalo and Kansas City, which is going to be the monster matchup this coming weekend. But we can look at those two teams, and Kansas City has a game tonight against Las Vegas. But those teams can be picked off, as we've seen Buffalo lose to Miami and almost lose to Baltimore down in the Charm City. And we can go through a lot of these other teams. And yes, we can talk about the NFC East and what they've done here, where you have not only the Eagles, but also the Cowboys and Giants, both at 4-1. and one. And we could go through some of these other teams, but even still, when we take a look here after these first five games, it's almost as if we know that some are formalities with some of the teams that we just mentioned, Buffalo, Kansas City, maybe even to a certain extent. We could look at the Eagles, maybe even the Cowboys, because that defense has been so dominant. But then you have a situation where, well, you know what, let's just get right to it. Let's just get to the winners and losers, and I'll break it down even further from there. So let's start off with our winners of the week. And the first one right off the bat are the New York Giants. And yes, there is a flip side to that. We could talk about the Packers being losers of the week, considering that they led most of this game 10-0, 17-3, 20-10, and they didn't score a point other than a safety late in the game in the second half. But that's where I give the Giants their props and that's why they win the week because for them to come back the way they did and we know they're compromised offensively with their wide receiving core and Daniel Jones we know was a question mark heading into the game with an ankle injury but they were able to persevere but their defense is what was the name of the game and saved them as far as coming out of London with a victory and a 4-1 record to boot. And Brian Dayball, you see him running off the field. If you saw some of the images, the videos of him just getting all caught up in the crowd and in the environment, the moment. And Dayball's done an excellent job here to where the Giant fan is now starting to believe whether or not this team could do some special things this year. I still need to see more because the week prior, we saw Daniel Jones throw for 71 yards against the Chicago Bears. And that's not to be confused with the 85 Bear defense. So let's... Pump the brakes just a little bit. But for now, that was a monumental win. A ginormous win for the Giants. And who knows? They have to be talked, at least for today, in the discussion of teams that we may have to pay attention to today moving forward. They're my winner number one. My winner number two, and I know people are going to say, oh, come on, seriously, Jay Reels? I'm going to give it to the Houston Texans. They were the last team to win a game, and they've actually been competitive. They have been in a lot of these games. All right, they lost to, by 10 to the Chargers, even though they were down 27-7, but they did come back and showed some fight. They didn't lay over and give up and say, all right, Chargers are going to come out of here with a blowout win. No, they fought hard. They were involved in that tie in week one where they were ahead 
20 to 3 in the game, and Indianapolis came back and it ended up in a tie, as we know. And you have to give it up. They've played well here. They've been in these games. It's not as if they've mailed in these games or and we know they don't have a lot of talent and Lovey Smith, and I get that, but give it up. They won their first game of the year, and that's going to lead into my losers of the week because to me, they're not going to be lumped into some of these teams that are the worst in the NFL. But before I even get to that, loser number one are the LA Rams. This is going to be a long year. I even mentioned it last week when they lost to the Niners there on Monday night where I even said that this could be a season and I'm not going to get into the whole Super Bowl hangover or anything like that. But I mentioned on Thursday's podcast that this Ram team could be in for a tough slog for the rest of this year because they do play in a division where Seattle has been feisty. We know the Niners are going to be very good. Arizona, although yesterday they had an opportunity to upend the 4-0 start by the Philadelphia Eagles, but they're not going to just all of a sudden capitulate and not play well. The Rams, they looked terrible yesterday. Matthew Stafford getting sacked left and right, and I know that Cowboy defense is top-notch. Micah Parsons, he's probably already your defensive player of the year. He's been that good, and even going back to last year when he was the defensive rookie of the year. But 10 points, a putrid effort. Even Sean McVay, the coach, says Stafford doesn't have a lot of options. Well, part of that is their fault because they haven't been able to get the ball to Allen Robinson, the other wide receiver that they brought in this offseason. Everything is Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup. And yes, they don't have the offensive weaponry from the wide opposition that they had in years past. Even last year, no Odell Beckham Jr., no Robert Woods in the slot. No Gerald Everett, the tight end. All they have is Higby, Cup, and a bunch of nobodies. And yes, Allen Robinson should be a part of this offense where I don't know why he wasn't part of the game plan here in the opening weeks of the season. But the Rams are in a heap of trouble and it looks like they may not even make the playoffs the way they've been playing the last couple of weeks. And yesterday was indicative of that. So they're my loser number one. And my loser number two, I'm going to lump up here only because you got to wonder. Which one of these four teams, after five weeks, are the worst in the sport? Is it the Lions, who have come back from big deficits in games and made it cosmetically look better than they have been, but they have not played well this year, even with the Hard Knocks appearance and Dan Campbell, and who knows if his voice in the locker room is starting to get a little bit tiresome as they got shut out in Foxborough yesterday? Is it the Carolina Panthers, who as we know, Baker Mayfield is not the answer at quarterback in Carolina as they lost to the Niners. And I get it, the Niners are obviously a top-notch team. But Carolina, and they had some bad losses. I know opening day against the Browns on a 58-yard field goal. But we know that Carolina is going nowhere fast and their coach could be out of Carolina before the season is over. Is it the Washington Commanders, who had one win against Jacksonville, but ugh, they have been just awful. And have not played well, to say the least. Including yesterday, again, it was a game that went under the radar because Tennessee went in their building. But are they the worst team in the league? And last but not least, dare I even say, my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers. 38-3, got waxed in Buffalo. If there's one thing that you like from the game yesterday, is that on both hits... On the quarterback, Kenny Pickett, when he got hit, when he slid for the first down and he got knocked and he got up. I know the offensive lineman, Chiwa Okafor, got up and got in the face 
of the Bills defensive player and then later on with a minute to go where he tried to make a play, scrambled out and threw the ball out of bounds to where Shaq Lawson, and he did dive at his knees and that should have been a rough in the passer. Granted that he was out of the pocket, I get it. But still, you can't go low on any quarterback, rookie or not. And here it was, he got up and went right to the face mask and pushed Lawson and another skirmish came about. You love the fight that you see from this quarterback. Now he has to play well and I understand it's a baptism by fire because he has the Buccaneers and the Dolphins and Eagles coming up on the schedule. But seeing that he is not going to back down, that he is going to stand up to his opponents, that's one thing you like if you're a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. Other than that, there is nothing to like about this team. Nothing. And you got to wonder which one of those four teams are the worst in the league. Now, I have to preface the rest of the league and what happened yesterday by saying that I didn't follow closely a lot of what took place. Yesterday was my one-year wedding anniversary. Of course, shouts to my lovely wife, Narice, who we enjoyed our day yesterday and I tried to stay away from sports because I wanted to be present and in the moment with her to enjoy our day. The weather was beautiful. We we're actually dog-sitting too, so that was beautiful. So a lot of the football stuff, I don't have a... Good, hold on, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to breeze through these games, people, because does anybody really care? I understand that the Vikings are 4-1, and and I didn't give them their just due, but they did beat the Bears and Justin Fields, so am I going to get crazy about that? Same for Seattle, New Orleans. I know that New Orleans won and finally got back in the win column, but again, those are two teams that aren't going to go anywhere. I mentioned Tennessee and Washington as Washington being one of the Worst teams and give it up for Tennessee to bounce back being 0-2 and now they're 3-2. and Jacksonville, they took a step back by losing at home to Houston after that road win in LA and a tough road loss in Philly. But if you're going to be taken seriously, you have to beat the Texans at home and they didn't do that. The Philadelphia-Arizona game, I didn't really touch on it, but the end was interesting because as Kyler Murray was scrambling... With no timeouts and the clock ticking, it was third and 10 and he slid right before the first down marker where he thought he had the first down and then the next play he spiked the ball so it was right away fourth down. I believe that was second and 10. So he slid there, he thought he had the first down but it was fourth down, they had to kick a field goal and it was wide right which would have sent the game into overtime. That didn't happen. So can you kill Murray on that? Maybe to a certain extent because he should have known where the first down marker was and I get it that he's feeling the rush and the time and everything is happening in warp speed, but yes, he should know that if the first down marker was at the 21-yard line, that he had to get at least to the 20, but he slid before that, or maybe he could have tried to dive to where the nose would have broken the plane of where the sticks were, didn't do that, so instead of it being first and 10, and they could run a play or two to maybe get in the end zone, that backfired, and obviously they ended up losing the game, where Philly is still undefeated, Cincinnati and Baltimore, I know there was some terrible play calling there by Zach Taylor and the Bengals with a minute 50 to go. They did take the lead, but then of course, Justin Tucker, who is a modern day mighty mouse. Here I come to save the day as he boots his team to victory in the closing seconds, 1917 Baltimore, a win that they had to have. They lost five in a row dating back to last year at home. And we know about the two home losses that they had this year, blowing big time deficits. And now the Bengals, it's back to the drawing board. And then the Jets, give it up to them. They're 3-2. and two. They beat the Dolphins yesterday, but Teddy Bridgewater was knocked out because of a concussion protocol. And I'm going to get to that in a second. 
but Skylar Thompson was your third stringer that had to come in and the Jets pretty much took it over from there and they win 40-17 to going away. Can we take this Jet team seriously? I got to wait and see a little bit more. They did beat up on Pittsburgh and granted that they had two fourth quarter drives there to win the game last week even though the Steelers are bad but give it up to Zach Wilson in his first game time or first time playing in a game since last year and then they beat the Dolphins yesterday obviously without Tua and without their backup in Teddy Bridgewater. All right, give it up but I still need to see more but kudos to the Jets and what they've done here so far. Tampa, what could you say about that roughing the passer there on Tom Brady? How that is a roughing a passer is beyond me. And obviously that saved the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from winning that game because the Falcons probably could have had an opportunity to take the lead and lead at that point. They would have gotten the ball back, but that wasn't the case as the Buccaneers hang on the win 21-15 and snap their two-game home winning streak or home losing streak, I should say. And that was a tough one for Atlanta. But other than that, That's what you got in the league. LA and Cleveland. I know Cleveland missed the last minute field goal. And I think there was another Jacoby Brissett late interception. I believe he has three interceptions this year. And they're all late in the game or in the final minute. I remember in the Jet game, he threw a pick there late. And their other loss off the top of my head. Who else did they lose to? Well, they gave up another pick there late. Obviously, they beat Carolina in the first game, as I talked about before. They beat the Steelers, so that doesn't count. So yes, so Cleveland has a lot to answer to as they lose to the Chargers. They're at home yesterday afternoon. Other than that, nothing to sneeze at here. And again, I'm not expecting every game to be knocked down, dragged down, witching hour, three games right down to the wire. Oh my God, major upset here. Oh my goodness, how did this play happen? Uh, I get it. But to me, very underwhelming here in these first five weeks. But it is wide open. I will say that. But still, plenty of football to be played and we'll see how it shakes out with Las Vegas going to Kansas City. Pretty much their season's on the line here if they have any discussion to be in the mix for a wild card or playoff. And I know it's way too early to talk about that, but if the Raiders lose tonight, you could pretty much write them off for 2022. And lastly, it's good to see the NFL now start to implement in-season some stringent concussion protocol rules and regulations because what we saw over the last couple of weeks, especially with what happened with Tua Tagovailoa in the Buffalo game and then four days later in Cincinnati, now on the fly, they decided to sharpen and really get whatever cobwebs that were out of the original concussion protocol policies. And I'm not going to say kudos to the NFL or to Roger Goodell or anything like that, but maybe you think this should have been done before the year or years ago that you had to have an incident with Tua Tagovailoa, one of your quarterbacks. Thank God it wasn't Patrick Mahomes and it's not to knock Tua by any stretch. But thankfully it wasn't one of your top key quarterbacks that could have been out for an extended period of time where I'm sure they would have done that even faster than they did here over the last six, seven, or eight days. But the NFL, again... They want to try to just be the shield that they are, bulletproof, impenetrable, etc. And now here they are trying to mask whatever dings that are in the armor or in the shield at this very moment to where now they could just slap on a little Windex, bang out a little bit of the rust, make sure that it's out of the auto body shop and look as shiny and bright and new as it possibly can be based on what happened here over the last couple of weeks. So I just thought to throw that in there. All right, now let's get to college 
where the Alabama Crimson Tide, who had to fight, scratch, claw, and sweat out of victory at home against Texas A&M, and the Aggies, who had a shot there at the end, and it's funny because I was watching the Met game, and with that unfolding in that ninth inning, as I mentioned earlier, bases loaded, 7-3, to three, and Josh Bell at the plate, I thought that there was a pick in the end zone that iced the game with about 22 seconds left, and I was sadly mistaken because there must have been a penalty where it was overturned. The Aggies actually had a couple more shots to win the game, and as it was, they did not. So 24-20 was the final. Alabama gets out of Tuscaloosa with a victory, but not with a number one ranking in the country overall because of that win and Georgia pounding on Auburn and for Ohio State waxing Michigan State in their respective games, they move up in the rankings to where Georgia's your number one, Ohio State number two, and Alabama is your three seed, followed by Michigan, Clemson, who they held serve with their wins over Indiana and Boston College respectively, USC, Oklahoma State, Tennessee, give it up to them because I talked about that game the other day with LSU, Brian Kelly in his first year down at the Bayou and even though this isn't the LSU team that we've saw or seen in years past winning a championship a couple years ago under Ed Orgeron, Joe Burrow, etc. And not to say that this could have been a statement game but this would have gone a long way for the program if they would have hung tight, if maybe, dare I say, even upset the Volunteers but as it was, far from the case. As they were not in the game, Tennessee was able to just go up and down the field, 40-13, so they're going to stay where they're at, as well as Ole Miss. And then also, to round out the top 10, is Penn State. And give it up to UCLA too, because that was a big game against Utah, to where now Chip Kelly, 6-0, as he's turned that program around, and who knows what that game's going to be like later in the year against their rival USC around Thanksgiving weekend. But for right now, UCLA is just a smidge behind the top 10 Let's see if that could stick. Maybe they can move up, depending on what we see here in the coming weeks for college football. But not much of an intriguing weekend or an interesting weekend. That was the one game that really stuck out with me was UCLA winning and Alabama dropping not one, but two spots in the rankings. But everything else remains chalk there in college football. And of course, we'll take a look at the schedule upcoming this weekend, which will be a week seven in college football on Thursday's podcast. All right, now to lace up my skates as I'll do an NHL preview. The season has begun as the Nashville Predators have won their two games over San Jose over the weekend in Prague, Czech Republic. So they're off to a 2-0 start. But the season in earnest begins tomorrow night where you have the Tampa Bay Lightning going up against the Rangers, a rematch of the Eastern Conference Finals from last year. ESPN will have the double dip to where Vegas Golden Knights will play in LA against the Kings. And the storylines heading into the season, I think are pretty simple. First one is the Colorado Avalanche. Are they going to be the next Tampa Bay Lightning? And the reason why I say that is because based on their Stanley Cup win last year, beating the aforementioned Lightning, and with their team pretty much intact, yes, they lost a couple of free agents, but knowing that this team is going to be it for the long haul. They have an MVP caliber player in Nathan McKinnon, who they signed long-term. They have a Norris Trophy winner who's probably going to win God knows how many from here on out in a one Kale McCarr. They slayed a couple of playoff demons that they had last year by winning this Stanley Cup final. And I think this could be a team that could go back-to-back and maybe even go for a three-peat similar to what we saw here in recent vintage with the Lightning. That's number one. 
The second one, and how could you not look at this? Is this the year the Toronto Maple Leafs finally get over the hump? And what I mean by over the hump is not even winning a Stanley Cup final, is winning a first-round playoff series. We know John Tavares is going to be out with an oblique the first few games, maybe even a couple weeks of the season. But this team is loaded offensively. We know that goaltending is going to be a little bit suspect as the former goalie Jack Campbell is now out. And the Maple Leafs are going to have to deal with that this year. All the black clouds and the stigma of not being able to have the heart, to have the gumption to get over the hump. So to me, that's one storyline that we have to look at. And yes, we could also look at the Penguins and the Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang team. But to me, I think that window's closed. We've seen that over the last few years, ever since they won back-to-back in the mid-20-teens. So I don't think they're going to be much of a factor. Will they have their moments? Maybe. And look, as it was, they had a 3-1 series lead on the Rangers and they spit the bit. So I don't expect much out of them, but that's not even a storyline for me. The other one is more of an individual performance and that's what won Alexander Ovechkin because he's 20 goals away from 800 21 from Gordie Howe and 22 from being number two all time in NHL history now he is currently 114 goals behind Wayne Gretzky obviously he's not going to get that this year and he had a 50 goal season last year he's going to have to have a 60 goal plus season this year and next year to get it now it looks like it's going to be three seasons total But we know that the goal watch for one Alex Ovechkin is going to be pretty much between now until he gets to Gordie Howe and eclipses him. So for the hockey fan, they're going to look at that. As far as teams, I'm not going to say the Florida Panthers who are your President's Trophy winner team. Although they're a team I think I'm going to look out for this coming season. And even a team like the Carolina Hurricanes because they bounced back from a big regular season last year. And even though they lost some players in free agency... But there's a lot of different angles you could go at here when it comes to teams and seeing if they could bounce back from tough playoff losses as they experienced last year when we take a look at the upcoming 2022-2023 NHL season. As I go through these divisions, starting off with the Eastern Conference and the Atlantic, you would think Tampa, they're going to be hurt from this year, even though they lost a lot of players. And again, to kind of run it back to see what they could do We know in the regular season, they're going to have their moments. Who knows if they go to a slow start this year based on the amount of games that they played over the last three years. And remember, you had the COVID year in 2020 and in 2021, that was also truncated as well. So that's one thing we'll have to keep in mind as we get into this season on whether or not they're going to be in it for the long haul. I'm going to say yes, just based on their track record. But just in this division alone, I think them, Toronto, Florida, kind of what we saw last year, Who knows what you're going to get out of the Red Wings. Even the Senators. I know they made some moves, but we can't expect them to do big things. The Sabres as well. The Bruins, who brought back a couple of Wiley veterans and a one David Krejci, Patrice Bergeron. But is there going to be enough gas in their tank to make a long run and try to get back to a cup final? The Canadians, to me, they're also going to be another team that's going to be lying at the bottom of that division. The Metropolitan, it's probably going to be the Rangers off the top of my head when I see this, the way they're going to play out this season. I think the Capitals could be tough, but again, you have Ovechkin and trying to reach these milestones and an aging team with Evgeny Kuznetsov. And you have a team that's, I think, long in the tooth. I think they could perform well. I think they're going to also 
play pretty well to where they'll make it to the postseason. But thankfully, if you're a Capital fan, you got your Stanley Cup. You don't have to worry about having to chase it with an aging team and especially with an aging superstar. Although he is made out of, who knows? He's a T-1000 for all intents and purposes. But you would think Rangers, Capitals, Penguins, Carolina, Columbus. I don't know if they're going to be a team maybe that could lay in the weeds. Probably not, but you're looking at the Islanders, Devils. Can they make that next step that they bring in the defenseman, Simone Nemich, in the second overall pick of this past year's draft to go along with Jack Hughes and a couple of their signings, Andre Palat, to bring some veteran and cup championship leadership to that team. That remains to be seen. But that's going to be a competitive division, but I also think it's going to be pretty top-heavy, similar to what we've seen in the Atlantic. Out West, in the Central, I think it's going to be Colorado, obviously, at the very top of that. I think the Wild could have a big year. Same for St. Louis. Winnipeg, they're kind of a middling team. They could be either or when you think about it. Same for the Stars. I think the Blackhawks, they're going to have a long year. The Coyotes, ugh, they're probably going to duke it out for the worst record in the sport or worst point total in the sport, I would think, to go along with maybe even Montreal or maybe even a team like that. I was, Maybe the Red Wings, I think they'll have a bit of an improvement, but still. But I think that's going to be a division, even with Nashville off to a 2-0 start, where Colorado is going to be the class of that division. And out West, can Edmonton bounce back after losing in a conference final to Colorado and put together a big regular season? Calgary bringing in Jonathan Huberdeau. Can they piggyback off what they did last year? Also, the Vegas Golden Knights, who a lot of people think that even with Robin Leonard out of goal because of his ongoing mental health issues, but can Vegas get off to a good start and maybe get some length in the season? Who knows about Anaheim, Vancouver, San Jose is already off to an 0-2 start, the Kings. That, I think, could be probably a two-team, maybe a three-team race out west in the Pacific and I'd even throw in the Seattle Kraken who in their first year only had what? 61 points? But the NHL, we all know once these teams make it to the postseason it's a whole different sport because unlike the NBA or even the NFL to a certain degree it's very rare that you're going to get an 8 beating a 1 or 2 beating a 7 in the case of the Basketball, even the football, we have seen six seeds go on and make Super Bowl runs. Steelers, Packers, the Giants, when they beat the Patriots, they were five seed. Understood, but with the new format, with the wild card being the seven seed, having to beat the two seed, yeah, it's very small sample size, but the NHL, they go above and beyond that to where an eight seed can easily beat a one seed, as we talked about ad infinitum. When I look at the over on the point totals, and I'll go through this quickly, Sadly, I picked the local teams, and not that I have my finger on the pulse big time on all these teams, especially the Devils, because I don't. Rangers, because I've seen them in the postseason last year, and not only that, but they're an up-and-coming team. I thought they were a year ahead of schedule, making it to a conference final, and with all their young talent, mixed with the veteran leadership that they have there, this is a team that could go and win a Stanley Cup this year. So when I look at their over-under point total... And their number is at 99.5. Last year, they were 110. I think they're going to blow past that in their sleep. That's my first over. My second over, I'm going to pick the Minnesota Wild because they have one of the game's top 
goal scorers and a one Kirill Kaprizov. They're a very formidable team. Yes, they lost in a first round to the St. Louis Blues, who were also a very tough team. But at 99 and a half, which is also the same number that the Rangers are at, and it had 113 points. And they were what? I believe they were a four seed. I could see them being somewhere around there, maybe even coming close. They're not going to win the division, I don't think, because of Colorado. But I think they'll also have a big year. What they do in the postseason is unbeknownst to me. I'm picking them as an over. My third over, I'm going to pick the Florida Panthers only because with Matthew Kachuk and what he brings, his style of play, even his leadership, and granted he hasn't won a cup, but he comes from a good family hockey pedigree. On top of that, he went to South Florida and in the introductory press conference came out and said, I want to be a big focal point of this team. I know I'm going to get paid the big bucks. I'm going to be a part of this movement here in South Florida. And you know what? With him and the new coach, Paul Maurice, what the hell? I'm picking Florida. And they had 122 points, which led the sport last year. And their over-under is 104.5. I'm going to pick them. And even though the goaltender, you would be a little bit nervous. But they do have Spencer Knight in tow. So who knows if he's be if he'll be able to take a step up and really put the Panthers on the map to the point that they could be a Stanley Cup finalist. Remains to be seen, but I'm going to pick the Panthers as my other over and my unders. I'm going to pick the Seattle Kraken. I know that's picking on a bad team, but they had them at 81 and a half and they had 60 points last year. I think I said 61. And even with them drafting Shane Wright, who a lot of people thought could have gone number one this year and maybe even number two, he dropped down to four and I'm sure he's going to infuse a lot of youth and maybe some hope there in the Pacific Northwest. But maybe they get to 80 points. But that's still under 81 and a half. I'm picking them as my number one under. My number two under is going to be the Devils. I understand, again, with the new defensive coming in, the number two overall pick that I mentioned earlier. Yes, you have Jack Hughes there. Yes, you have a team where you're going to go with Vitek Vanacek as your starting goalie over Mackenzie Blackwood. Let's see how that goes. They do have Dougie Hamilton, who was the defenseman that they signed last year from Carolina. And again, they did bring in Andre Palat for that leadership, for that experience, etc. But their number is 88 and a half. I could see them maybe hanging around a little bit, but then fading late. I'm picking them as an under. And who in the hell thought that the Islanders at 94 and a half was going to be the number that Vegas would pick as an over-under point total? I'm picking them as a severe under. Yes, they started off last year with 13 games on the road. To start off their season. Yes, they couldn't get out of their own way. But they did fire the coach. They only brought in one key piece. And that's the defenseman Alexander Romanov from Montreal. They didn't really do anything to upgrade their roster. Yes, I understand Anders Lee, their captain who wasn't there because of an ACL. Is going to be back this year. And maybe that's going to be enough. Uh Uh-uh, not this guy. They may be competitive. They may have a lot of fight. But they don't have a ton of talent. And in this league, you need to have a ton of talent. So 94 and a half, I'm picking them as an under. Once again, my overs. I have the Rangers over 99 and a half. The Wild over 99 and a half. The Panthers over 104 and a half. I understand it's a little top heavy. I get it. I didn't pick a lesser team to pick them as an over. But my unders, the Seattle Kraken at 88 and a half. The Devil, oh, excuse me, 81 and a half. The Devils at 88 and a half. And the Islanders, 94 and a half. Those three are my unders. And my Stanley Cup final pick 
I'm going to pick for the second year in a row the Edmonton Oilers facing off against the New York Rangers and I'm going to pick Connor McDavid beating the Rangers in seven games as my Stanley Cup final prediction. And that'll do it. No NBA people. The NBA obviously will be front and center come next week when the season begins a week from tomorrow night. But I'll get into a lot more of the things come Thursday, maybe some NBA stuff, a lot of the things to discuss as your source for all the source in the world of sports is right here on the J Reels Podcast as I get ready to sign off. That will conclude. Thank you so much for stopping by, for participating, to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Your participation is never taken for granted. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. You know where to get them. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. So if you could do that, once again, I thank you very much. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or suggestion, you could do so at the following. TikTok, the J Reels Podcast. Instagram, the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. Lastly, to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth is going 100% to this, the production, upkeep of the website, equipment, etc. to make this experience come crystal clear through your earbuds and speakers because whether you do or do not know, this is why I love to talk about people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. If you don't think so, then you're not paying attention. Or if you don't think so, then I have to step up my game even more. But that's okay. Because this is what I love to do. This is what I love to talk about. The knowledge to entertain, inform with my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>